The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel. We're in chapter 11 this evening. As Dennis was just sharing, we're going to be looking at the story of Lazarus. And the title of my sermon for you tonight is Hope Has a Name. Hope Has a Name. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you that your word is timeless. It's timeless and it's timely. It addresses the needs in our lives, Lord, as though it were written directly and specifically and uniquely to us. This is, in fact, your love letter to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hear your heart tonight. That as we open your word, it would open our hearts, that it would do surgery, that it would perform the good work that you sent. And Jesus, we thank you for the promise that your word will not return to you void, but every time it goes forth from your mouth, it accomplishes its mission and its purpose and its plan in our lives. And so we thank you in advance for the good work that you're going to do in us, how you are shaping and molding us into the image of Christ, and how we're going to leave here looking more like you tonight. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, John chapter 11. And by now you know that John, his literary style, he wraps his teachings and the teachings of Jesus around these seven miracles or seven signs that he highlights and really zooms the camera in on for us so that he can then use those to extrapolate out the teachings of Jesus. These were by no means the only miracles that Jesus performed, but these are just seven that John decided to focus his camera on. And so the miracle we're going to be looking at today in chapter 11 is the seventh of those seven signs. At this point, we've already seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him heal a nobleman's son, raise a lame man up to his feet. We've seen him feed a hungry multitude with a few loaves of bread and some fish. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him open the eyes of a man born blind. And now we're going to see him perform what is arguably or perhaps without question, his most impressive miracle of all, as he raises a man from the dead who had been dead four days. Now, Jesus had raised other people from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He also raised the widow's son from the dead. But what makes this particular miracle different and significant is the fact that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, He had been dead for four days. Now that held some significance or weight as it pertains to the popularly held beliefs of Jewish people at the time. You see, there was a commonly held belief back then that the soul of a deceased person would hang out in or near or around the dead body for three days. And then after the third day, the decomposition process would settle in and the soul would move on to the next life. And so for three days, they held on hope that perhaps this person could be raised from the dead. But Lazarus had been dead four days. I I suppose it was a bit of like princess bride theology. You remember the princess bride? 
And there was that whole scene with uh, Billy Crystal where he, he was working on Wesley, who's the main character, and he had suffered all this torture, and they thought he was dead. And Billy Crystal, who was this healer, said, he's not dead, he's just mostly dead, you know? And we can work with mostly dead. If he were fully dead, we'd have no hope. And so the belief in Israel at that time was that if you'd been dead for three days or less, you were only mostly dead. <laughs> but Lazarus had been dead for four days, so he was all the way dead. And it seemed like hope was lost. But that's when Jesus is at his best. Let me say that again. When things are at their worst, Jesus is at his best. And I hope that encourages someone in here tonight. Maybe you're facing what seems like a hopeless situation right now. And it seems like all the doors are closed. It seems like all the options have been exhausted. And what this story does, it reminds us that it's, all, it's always too soon to give up on God. You remember the great baseball player Yogi Berra? He was famous for coming up with all of these catchphrases, and he had this phrase that he would use, it ain't over till it's over. You remember that phrase? Well, I'd like to tweak that a little bit and re-render it, and I'd like to say it like this. If it ain't good, then God ain't done. Somebody say amen. If it ain't good, God ain't done. Why do I say that? Because he works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So let's go ahead and get into our text now, beginning there in verse 1. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to move at a brisk pace. But it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. All right, so we learned here about these three individuals, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're from the town of Bethany, which was a small little village situated just outside the ancient city of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And that's where they lived, and they were close friends of Jesus. Whenever Jesus would attend one of the various feasts or festivals there in Jerusalem, he would stop by the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He seemed to frequent their house. He stayed with them often. And, and the tone of their relationship is one of love. It's the dominant chord in this whole scene. Love within the family for each other their love for Jesus, and his love for them. In fact, they were so, on such close terms that they could send their servant to Jesus, and all he had to say was, Lord, the one you love is sick, and they assumed that Jesus would know who they were talking about. That's how close-knit this family was in their relationship with Jesus. Well, when he heard this, verse 4 says, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. All right, there's, there's some things in here I want to tease out. And the first thought is this. God's delays are not his denials. And I bring that up because I find something curious in these verses. And, and it's curious because Jesus tells the messenger that Lazarus' sickness won't end in death. However, 
We know from the timeline that John gives us and the distances of the places where Jesus is and where Mary and Martha are, that by the time Jesus delivers this message to the messenger, that it won't end in death, that Lazarus at that moment was already dead. So here's my question. Why would Jesus say that? Was he lying? The answer, of course, is no. And the real answer is, is as you dig into it, notice Jesus wasn't saying that Lazarus isn't going to die. What he said was, this sickness isn't going to end in death. That's not how the story is going to end. In other words, Jesus was saying, death won't get the final word in this story. What he was doing is he was planting the seed of hope in the hearts of his friends before he even arrived on the scene. He knew that dark days lie ahead and that they were passing through the valley of grief. And so in their grief, he wanted to plant the seed of hope. We know how death is. It feels like it's the most final thing that there is. But Jesus he lets us know that even death itself must yield to the power of his command. You know, it's been said that Jesus never attended a funeral that he didn't ruin in the sense that he would raise that person from the dead. And by the way, that goes for his own funeral as well. And what Jesus said about Lazarus is equally true of every person in here this evening. This story, your story, won't end in death. Somebody say hallelujah. If you belong to Christ tonight, then death doesn't get the last word. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks to God, who gives us victory in Christ Jesus. So that's the first curious thing. The other thing that's interesting is that Jesus, after he finds out that Lazarus is sick, stays where he is for two more days before he goes to see his sick friend. And the question, of course, is, if Jesus loves Lazarus so much, then why does he delay? Why doesn't he immediately go with the messenger and heal him? Have you ever been there? I mean, sometimes we can relate to what Mary and Martha must have been thinking in this moment. We pray for things to happen, and sometimes it doesn't go as planned. Nothing changes. The sickness doesn't go away. The person we're praying for doesn't get better. The problems in our life only get worse. And sometimes when we've been waiting for the Lord to show up in our lives for a long time, we can start to lose hope, and it can drive us to the edge of despair. And in those seasons where we're waiting, the waiting room of God, as it were, our tendency is to interpret his delay as a denial. But let me warn you against that. You shouldn't be too quick to do that. Because what this story does is it shows us that sometimes Jesus delays his coming to us because he wants to do something even better than what we're asking for. And that certainly applies here. You see, Mary and Martha wanted a resuscitation. That's what they were asking for. But Jesus. He wanted to perform a resurrection. Now, you'll agree with me when I say that that's much better. In the same way, it could be that the thing that you're praying for and hoping for and waiting on God for is, is not happening because God's setting you up for something better. 
could be that the scene, as it were, of your greatest disappointment might about to become the stage for your most powerful miracle. And what we need to remember is that God has a plan. He has a purpose. And his plans, have you ever noticed this? They don't always line up with the way we think he should do things. But God never consults me. Does he consult you with his plans and purposes? No, he just does what he wants to do. And which is why it's important for us to remember this promise. This is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It's in your notes. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I don't think like you think. You see, our understanding is clouded by our emotions and by our finite, truncated view of reality. We don't see the big picture, but God sees the end from the beginning. All we can see is what's right in front of us. That's why it's important, so essential that we trust him. It's been said like this, never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. I once saw an artist do a painting. It was an unusual painting, and you can actually look this up on YouTube, but Someone sent this to me. It's like a six-minute clip. And the artist is there, and he's working quickly and seemingly haphazardly. He's smudging and smearing blotches of paint on this large canvas in front of him. And it just looks like a big mess, a big blob. And even when he's finished, you can't tell what it's a painting of. It just looks like a hot mess. But then he steps forward, picks up the painting, and flips it over. And in that moment, what at first appeared to be just a tangled mess of black smudges suddenly becomes a clear picture of the face of Jesus as he's looking out. And I'm reminded through that simple little analogy that God's work in our lives oftentimes seems like a mess. It seems like a bunch of black smudges. And in those moments, we need to trust the artist that he knows how to flip things around. He knows how to take even the ugly, bad, horrible, messy things of this life and bring good from them, which is what he's going to do in the story we're looking at. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, this is verse 7, let's go back to Judea. Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. All right, so Jesus makes this comment about walking in the daylight. What does he mean? The disciples, of course, are reluctant to head back to Judea. Last time they were there, there was an attempt on Jesus' life. And and so Jesus says, you guys don't get it. I'm walking in the day. And as long as it's day, you can see by the light of that day. He's talking about walking in God's revealed plan and purpose for his life. God, rather, Jesus did everything according to this divine timetable. And it was this well-orchestrated, beautifully crafted, divine plan. And he knew that as long as he was walking in God's plan for his life, he was invincible and untouchable until the moment came. So he says, I'm walking in the light. And by the way, what was true for him is true for everyone in here. 
God has a plan, a unique purpose for your life. And to walk in the light of the day is to walk in the light of his plans and his divine purposes. And by the way, as you fulfill your divine destiny, you are invincible until the Lord's done with you. And once he's done with you and you go to heaven, there's nothing you can do to elongate that. So you just trust him and walk in the day. Now, verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied and said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus gives us this beautiful metaphor here for what death is like for the believer. You know, it's interesting how different cultures have different ways of dealing with death. In America, it seems like we typically or generally try to avoid the topic altogether. We don't even like using the the language or the terminology of death. So we'll we'll talk about the, the nearly departed or those who've passed on, but we don't even want to think about death. Several years ago, there was a book called The Denial of Death that actually won the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction, in the nonfiction category. And in it, Dr. Ernest Becker makes this telling comment about our culture's perception of death. He said this, and I quote, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. So true. We try to stave off the aging process and hold it at bay, but all of us have a date with destiny where we will stand before the Lord. The Bible's clear on that point. But the Bible also tackles the issue of death head on. And it tells us that death is a thief and an enemy that made its entrance into our world because of sin. Furthermore, it tells us that that's why Jesus came to defeat death and that when he hung on the cross, he removed the sting of death so that for the believer, it's no longer that we die, but it's more like falling asleep, which is the language Jesus uses here to describe what had happened to his friend Lazarus. He says he's fallen asleep, but then he tells them plainly, I'm talking about the fact that he's dead. You know, it's, it's, it's like this, when my kids were little, Oftentimes, they would fall asleep downstairs on our lap or perhaps in the car. Or maybe we were at my parents' house, and they'd fall asleep over there. And so we would carefully transport them and get them into the car or scoop them up in our arms and carry them from downstairs and transport them to their bed upstairs. And the following morning, they'd wake up, and they'd have no idea how they made it from downstairs to upstairs. And Jesus says, you know what? That's what it's like when a believer passes from this world into the presence of the Father. He says, it's like you close your eyes to this world and you open them. And there you are right in the presence of the Father and the angels in heaven. It's glorious. So he says, this is what's happened to our friend Lazarus. But now we're going to go to him because I've got a plan. Then Thomas, verse 16, also known as Didymus, which means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was a bit of a pessimist, if you can't pick up on that. 
He shows up a handful of times in the New Testament and is well known for kind of looking on the dark side of things. He had a knack for for doubting, and, and, and he became famous for it. He even developed the moniker Doubting Thomas, you know, for all the times that he doubted and struggled. And I think it's telling that he's also a twin. We're not told who his twin was in the Bible, but I think I know who it was, or is, rather. It's me. Maybe it's you, too. <laughs> I've struggled. I've wrestled. I've doubted just like Thomas. But that's not my whole story, just like it wasn't his. You see, Thomas may have doubted, but he was also devoted. He was willing to go to Jerusalem and to die with Jesus if that's what it took. The Gospels tell us how his doubts eventually gave way to courageous faith, and he took the Gospel with him all the way to India. And I love Thomas because I think he's a terrific reminder of of the fact that our past doesn't have to define our future and that our doubts don't have to define our destiny. We should all try to strive to be a little bit more like devoted Thomas, willing to go all the way with Jesus. It says on his arrival there in verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Now, listen to Martha. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Listen to that word, if. Oh, if only. How many times have we said that? It's such a big word, that word, if. And I feel like you can almost hear the heartbreak tinged with just a a touch of passive aggressiveness, if you will, or maybe a bit of anger there in her voice. She didn't understand. I mean, she'd seen Jesus heal other people of their sicknesses. She'd seen Jesus do so many miracles. Why not her brother? I mean, he could have just spoken the word and Lazarus would have been made well, but he didn't. How many times have we been in that same boat where we're looking at other people and we say, they got their miracle. When's it my turn? Lord, if only you had shown up. If only I had. If only they had. If only this. If only that. And in this phrase, we see that Martha had some faith, but her faith was limited. She recognized Jesus' power to heal, but in her mind, the window of opportunity It had closed, and now that her brother was dead, it was too late. So she says, if only you had been here. But then something wells up inside of her. And in verse 22, she adds this powerful statement. If only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, everybody say, even now. I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Wow. That is a bold declaration of faith. Real faith says, I know it looks bad. I know it looks like it's too late. I know it might seem like things are beyond hope, but I know that even now, God can still show up. Even now, God can do something. Even now, Jesus can turn things around. You see, most of us give up far too easily on the Lord. 
And again, I want to refer you back to that hopeless situation that might characterize your life right now. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your financial situation. Maybe it's your health. And your hope is hanging on by a thread. Your joy is all but gone. And God wants you to know that he is building within you an even now kind of faith that he's not done if it's not good. Because he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called to his purposes. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? As we turn the corner in this story, this is the hinge on which the door of the rest of this story swings. And we learn here that hope has a name. As Jesus declares in emphatic, bold font, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven I am statements that Jesus is going to make in John's gospel. And each one of these I am statements helps to fill in the picture of who God is, and they reveal another dimension of Jesus' character and his heart to us. And he says in this one, I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, this is such a beautiful one. You see, the the hope of a future resurrection was something that was embedded within the Old Testament prophecies. And many of the Old Testament prophets foretold of a future date when this event would happen, when the dead would be raised to life. However, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he takes all of those Old Testament prophecies that speak of a future event, and he ties them to a person. But Martha didn't get that, at least not at first. And that's reflected in her response. She says, I know The resurrection's going to come, but that doesn't quell the pain that I feel in my heart now. You see, at that moment, she needed something real. She needed something personal, just like we all do when we're grieving, when our hearts are broken. It's not enough to just cling to a cold, dead, lifeless religion. We don't need abstract prophetic pictures or future events. What we need is a person. And that's what Jesus was giving to Martha in this moment. He was saying all the prophets in the Old Testament, they were talking about me. And let me just tell you, friends, this is what makes Christianity unique of all the religions in the world. You see, the other religions of the world pin their hopes on some doctrine or some belief system, some ethical code, some religious writing. But our hope resides squarely in a person named Jesus, who claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Peter put it like this in his epistle. He said, we have a living hope. Our hope isn't just in some dead, lifeless textbook, but it's in the person of Jesus, who came to destroy the works of the devil. And he did that all throughout his ministry. Every time he opened blind eyes, every time he healed someone of leprosy, every time he unstopped deaf ears, every time he raised someone from the dead, he was reversing the curse that had fallen on humanity. And of course, the greatest ultimate display of the power of sin 
is that it kills. Sin brings death. The wages of sin is death, which is why the ultimate display of Jesus' power is seen in his ability to raise someone from the dead. And this gives us real hope, real hope for the struggles that we face. You see, Jesus' question to Martha still lingers in the air today when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And I like to preach from this text when I conduct funeral services, and I always come to this passage, and I ask that question, and I look into the eyes of the people, and I can tell whether or not they truly believe this. I don't know about you, but I'm here to declare that I do believe it, that Jesus lives, and because of that, it changes the way that I have processed my grief as it pertains to my father who went to be with the Lord this past year. Because like Job, I can say I know I don't hope, I don't think, I don't feel it in my heart, but I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Now, that doesn't mean I don't get sad. It doesn't mean that we don't still process feelings of grief, but the sadness that we feel when a loved one who knows the Lord has gone on before us is tempered by the fact that we know where they are. So we're sad, but it's a different kind of sadness because those tears are laced with confident hope. You know, it's, it's like I'm sad, but I'm not sad for him. You know what I mean? I mean, if anything, he should be sad for us. I'm sad for myself. We're the ones stuck down here. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's seeing Jesus' face, and so are your loved ones who know the Lord and have gone before you. So while there is still sorrow, It's important to note that the Christian doesn't sorrow the same way this world sorrows. For we sorrow not as those who have no hope, because we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So Jesus makes this bold, emphatic declaration to Martha and asks the question, do you believe this? And I love her response. It's truly one of the strongest statements of faith you'll find anywhere in the Bible. In verse 27, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Oh, she describes three titles to, the, to Jesus there, defining him. She calls him Lord. She calls him the Messiah, and she calls him the Son of God. And Jesus is all of these things and more. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. She said, the teacher is here, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, it says she got up quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Running to the feet of Jesus, that's what Mary does. Now, notice Mary's grief looks slightly different than her sister Martha's. They both said the same thing about If you had been here, my brother would have died, wouldn't have died. But I I sense a difference in their tone. With Martha, I detect an edge to her words. She's standing there with the Lord, maybe hands on hips. No, Lord, if you had been here. But with Mary, 
She falls at Jesus' feet, and all I sense is sorrow. Her heart had burst into a thousand pieces, and she carries each one of those pieces and rushes to the presence of Jesus and just falls at his feet in a puddle and lets her broken heart shatter there right at his feet. And the thing to note about that is, in both cases, with both women, regardless of their emotional state, whatever they were feeling, they both went to the right place. And there's all these emotions associated with grief and loss. And as you're struggling through the various stages of loss, sometimes you feel anger, sometimes you feel acceptance, sometimes you feel sadness. And the thing to note about Martha and Mary is that they both took their feelings to Jesus. And that is a good, good example for all of us to follow. I also think it's worth pointing out that of the three instances where Mary really comes to the forefront in the Gospels, In all three episodes, we see her, we find her there at the feet of Jesus. She sits at Jesus' feet in devotion. She falls at Jesus' feet in her mourning and in her grief. And then she pours herself out at Jesus' feet in praise and in thanksgiving. The point is, in all these various seasons of her life, the highs as well as the lows, the peaks as well as the valleys, Mary found her way to the feet of Jesus. In doing so, she becomes, again, a powerful example for us to follow. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're struggling with tonight. But I can tell you this, no matter what it is, if you're filled with elation, if life is good, if, if your joy and, is full and your cup is overflowing, you run to the feet of Jesus. If your heart is broken and sorrow is, is seeping out of every pore in your body, you run to the feet of Jesus. In whatever state, whatever season you find yourself, you run to him. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, and he saw the Jews who had come along with her weeping, he was moved, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So the weeping, they're loudly lamenting and wailing. That's what's described there. And Jesus sees their broken hearts, and he's deeply moved. And it says he's troubled. Make note of that word troubled. It's a word that could also be translated as Jesus became angry. In fact, the word picture associated with that word, it, it was used to describe a horse that was snorting, a snorting horse. That's the word that gets used to describe Jesus' emotional state as he sees the heartbreak, the angst, the travail, and the turmoil of their hearts as they weep the lo- and mourn the loss of their loved one, Lazarus. So I, I wonder, and I ask you, what was Jesus so upset about? And I think we know. He was mad at sin. He was angry at the effects of sin. Sin kills, it robs, it destroys, it brings death. He was mad at Satan. He saw the consequences of sin and the pain that it causes, and it angered him at his core. And so in verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Just two words, and yet it says so much. We see these two sides to Jesus juxtaposed, placed side by side. We see him angered by sin, but we also see him weeping at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. Deep, deep 
heart empathy is conveyed in these words. In fact, there was a, a preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from a century ago. He preached two whole sermons on these two words, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And yet it speaks to us on such a profound level about how Jesus enters into whatever emotions that we're feeling Whatever, again, whatever you're faced with, whatever you're experiencing right now, Jesus knows and he can understand and he can feel empathy. He can enter into that experience. He knows the pain of grief and of loss firsthand. The prophet Isaiah described the Messiah like this. He is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. That's Isaiah 53.3. So he's not removed from our suffering. And when Jesus walked on this earth for 33 and a half years. He didn't hold humanity at arm's length. He didn't hover three feet off the ground as though he were distanced from us, but he lived and walked as it were a mile in our shoes. And so he knows what we're going through. And yet unlike us, he's able to do something about the pain that he feels. Let's finish our story in verse 36. It says, then the Jews said, oh, see how they loved him, how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And he said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. For he has been there for four days. And I like to reference the King James version at this point. I'm reading out of the... NIV, but in King James, she said, by now he stinketh, which I just think is kind of funny. And then Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said it for the benefit of those standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Final point in our message this evening, we are all Lazarus. You see, there was a stone that blocked Lazarus' tomb. That stone is reminiscent of another stone. Is your memory being jogged in this moment as we remember the stone that the Roman soldiers used to seal the entrance of the tomb where Jesus' body would lay? And yet just as that stone rolled away, Jesus rolled this stone away, and he called out for Lazarus to come out. And I know you guys have heard this before, but it bears repeating that it's a good thing that Jesus specified Lazarus. Because if he had just said, come out, all the dead and all the corpses and all the graves would have come out, and that would have really been a sight to see. Now, in that moment, we, we're seeing the story from the human perspective, and it's beautiful. I, I mean, I imagine Lazarus in this mummified state. It says he was wrapped around his hands and his feet, and he had a cloth around his face. There was probably more than 100 pounds of garments and spices that they had used in the embalming process. And so he kind of comes waddling out of the tomb like this, and everyone is slack-jawed and wide-eyed as they see Lazarus is living again. And that's how the story plays out down here. 
let's think for a moment what was happening in heaven. <laughs> There's Lazarus. He's been in the presence of the Lord, just enjoying all that heaven has to offer. I mean, you think about how wonderful heaven's going to be. And, and Lazarus is there, and, and there's the angels, and he's catching up with Abraham, and he's, he's, he's telling you know, Moses about his life and hearing from him and all the rest. And, and then he hears a faint cry, Lazarus, come out. And he's thinking, well, that was weird. I'm Lazarus. And then, shoo, there he is, back on earth. And he finally gets out of the tomb and he wanders out and they release the, the cloth from his face and they're crying tears of joy. Meanwhile, Lazarus is crying different tears <laughs> as he's mourning the fact that he's no longer in paradise. He's thinking about all that he had left behind. But in Lazarus, I see and I want you to see a picture of us. You see, he was dead. And so is every person who doesn't know the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That is, we are unable to relate to the Lord or, or enter into a relationship with the Lord. Why? Because of sin. Sin buries us. It makes a mummy out of us, just like Lazarus. But then Jesus comes, and he calls us by name. And his word pierces the armor of our hearts. And we go from death to life and from darkness to light. And the Bible describes how he puts a new heart within our chest, one that beats to please the Lord. And he can inscribe upon that new heart his will and his plan. And he gives us new desires. And he gives us a new nature. He forgives us our past. He frees us from sin's power and calls us out of our grave into this glorious new relationship with him. And by the way, just as Jesus called Lazarus from his grave, he is still calling men and women out of their tombs and into the light to this very day. His word still holds power. He still calls dead things to life and things that are not as though they were. And by the way, if you're not a believer in Jesus tonight, then he's calling you right now. He's calling you into his family. He's calling you out of the grave. He's calling you into relationship with him. And so I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. We want to give you an opportunity, Lord, as you're moving now by your Holy Spirit in this room. It's so beautiful. Powerful. Wonderful. That Jesus, you are in the resurrection business. And you might feel like your heart is as cold and as dead and as lifeless as a rock. The Bible talks about how he'll take your heart of stone and he'll give you a new heart. A heart that beats in unison with his heart. He'll forgive you of your past. He'll welcome you into his family. He'll gift you his peace, his love, his joy. He'll give you his grace. He'll write your name on his heart. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. If it's the desire of your heart, 
You want to know Jesus. You want to have your sins forgiven. You want to be welcomed into his family. I want to pray a prayer with you. I want to lead you in this prayer. And Maybe you prayed this prayer before when you were a kid or years ago, but you've strayed and you've wandered and Jesus is calling you back home. And you're like that prodigal son or prodigal daughter. I believe in this season God is calling many prodigals back home. And so he might be knocking on the door of your heart as well tonight. And if you'll respond to him, the Bible says he'll come in and he'll sup with you. That is, he'll have have fellowship with you. And you can know the Lord. You can have peace about knowing that when you die in this world, that you'll be welcomed into his presence in the next life. If that's the desire of your heart, just slip your hand up. I want to pray with you. I want to lead you in a prayer. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. If that's the desire of your heart, You're renewing your vows. You've already prayed this prayer. Even for those of us who know and love the Lord for a long time, let's just pray this together out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and forgiving me and taking my place on the cross. I receive the gift of salvation. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And lead me in the way of everlasting life till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.